Hey, everyone. Welcome to Things We Said Today, a Beatles podcast about the Beatles, together, apart, and everything in between. I'm Darren DeVivo, one of three hosts of Things We Said Today, and I'm very happy to say that the family is all intact once again, as both Ken Michaels and Alan Kozin uh, is with me on this show. Uh, We've got a bunch of things to get to, so uh, let me introduce my co-hosts, my good friends. You know Ken Michaels from his years and years of doing radio programs having to do with the Beatles, close to 40 years of Beatle programs and over 2,000 shows that have been broadcast. These days, Ken hosts Every Little Thing, uh, which is a weekly show that's been going on now since 1982. It's in syndication. There's actually a version of the show that lives on uh, WNHU, but that's before a thing called coronavirus came in and basically uh, everything ground to a halt at WNHU. But the syndicated version of Every Little Thing featuring music and news and trivia and themes that's going on. Uh, And uh, Ken is also the co-host of Talk More Talk, a Beatles video chat. Uh, And he makes a carves a little time out every other week to hang out here on things we said today. So uh, how are you, Ken? Great to have you back on board. Thank you, Darren. With that introduction, I don't have to do any plugging at the end of the show now. <laughs> Actually, I, I said, uh, I, it's great to have you back on board. You never went away. But mm. Alan Cozen's been away for a couple of shows. Of course, if you've been following us, you know that uh, last week, Ken and I guested on the Two Legs podcast. And the show before that, we had the Two Legs guys, Andy and Tom, on Things We Said Today. And now Alan Cozen is back. Alan Cozen, you've been uh, reading his work now for close to 40 years. One-time classical music critic for the New York Times. He's also written a number of books on the Beatles. uh, The author of The Beatles, From the Cavern to the Rooftop. And the author of Got That Something, How the Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Changed Everything. And in addition to his years where he was the classical music critic at the New York Times, these days... He's writing for the Wall Street Journal and uh, still making contributions to the New York Times. And really what we've been talking about a lot lately, Alan's working on what sounds like it's going to be the definitive multi-volume biography slash history of Paul McCartney, which is why Alan's been out of commission here on Things We Said Today, working hard, meeting his first big deadline. Alan, welcome back to Things We Said Today, and it's great to have you uh back on with us uh thanks darren and hello darren and ken how are you guys doing good i understand paul's been looking over your shoulder at all the notes that you've been writing (laughs) well you know i mean if if he was looking over his shoulder he could pop in for an interview that would be fine you know (laughs) i'd bring him to our session um please do yeah please do for those who don't actually know maybe you don't listen to every show or you haven't picked up when we've discussed it the big project for you, Alan, now is this book that you're co-writing. Right. Um, I mentioned it's going to be, sounds like it's going to end up being the definitive uh, bio on Paul McCartney. And it is multi-volume. Volume number one, uh, you're reaching the final stages, right, of writing and editing. And right. uh, tell us, uh, what's the title of the book uh, for those who don't know that you're doing this? Okay. And uh, when might we see volume one get published? Okay. The, the whole series is called McCartney legacy. 
Um, and volume one is Beyond the Beatles, 1969 to 73. So that's what we've just sort of more or less finished. I mean, I, we, we finished writing the book. It still needs an introduction. And now we're in the process of proofreading and doing little tweaks here and there and trimming out some stuff because it's a little longer than the publisher wants. And, um, you know, but, uh, you know, it, it covers from the Beatles break up more or less. I mean, it, it, it includes basically all of 1969 because you can't understand the Beatles break up and what that was to Paul. And, you know, I think we all know that it was a lot to Paul uh, mm. without understanding, you know, the whole situation of the, you know, attempted Northern Songs acquisition and the NEMS attempted acquisition and the EMI new contract that Alan Klein negotiated. And in fact, Alan Klein at all, you know, you need to really understand all that stuff. You can't really just start with, uh, you know, him making the McCartney album. Right. Uh, you know, and it's actually kind of interesting because the Beatles really still runs all through the story because it wasn't really until 1975 that John signed the paper you know, dissolving the partnership, which is what Paul wanted all along. So he's going to want it all through volume one, and it won't be until volume two that it, that it finally gets signed. But, you know, we look at the making of each album, pretty much each, well, not just pretty much, actually each track, you know, what was the basic track, what was the, all the overdubs, when it was mixed, how it was mixed, you know, anything we could find because, you know, we started out wanting to write a sessionography and we expanded it to be sort of a, you know, fuller biography. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been, it's been quite a trip. I mean, I've learned a ton and, uh, you know, it's not like I wasn't paying attention all these years, <laughs> but, um, you know, there's just a lot of information out there that hasn't really got out there. Uh, and we have had access to an awful lot of paperwork and correspondence and, you know, you name it. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just reading it now to do the, you know, trimming and proofreading. I, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with the way it has turned out. And I think Adrian, my colleague Adrian Sinclair is my co-author, and I think he's pretty pleased with it too. So um, it's due October fifth at our publisher, and um, I think we will actually make that deadline. And uh, it then comes out maybe nine months after that. So it looks like late spring, summer, twenty twenty one for volume one. Nice. Yeah. All right. Nice. I mean, you it know, sounds to me like it's exhaustive. Hmm. I mean, is there any, in a nutshell, any one little area you decided now we won't touch on that, or is it everything, Paul's life and every uh, every detail? It's kind of everything we could find, you know. So it's you know a lot of it is obviously about his music making, but then you know he would go to Jamaica or you know, France or Italy or wherever, you know, we chart pretty much everything he does. And, you know, I would say that in the four years we cover, there probably aren't 
30 days in that period where we don't have a mention of what he's doing. And, and, and it may be less than 30 days. I mean, it, it feels like we are accounting for basically every day of his life during that time. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, and he was a busy guy. I mean, you know, he still is. But uh, he didn't slow down. You, you sort of like, you know, you're writing about what he's doing in a single day or a single week. And it's like, wow, this is exhausting, you know. I mean, he's got always like lots of things that he's juggling. And, uh, you know, he, he worked real hard. That's, you know, that's the one thing. And he, you know, he's, he, he had uh, pretty much the ability to get music out of anything you know anything he saw anything he heard could become a song you know you never knew and and he would let them gestate over years so there are some of these things where you know we're talking about him writing this song up in scotland in 1970 and he might not record it until 1973 you know mm -hmm. there's a lot of that kind of stuff you know not to mention all that stuff he recorded during the ram sessions that you know, would trickle out over the years as either B-sides or end up on Red Rose Speedway or, or whatever. So, you know, we're, I think we're telling the story in a way that, you know, people will read it and sort of understand the kind of human effort that went into what he did. You know, he wasn't a magical person. He worked hard you know, and he wanted things the way he wanted them. I mean, he and Linda both knew very well that they would be taking criticism for years when he wanted her to play keyboard and wings, you right. know, and she's totally open about it. I mean, we have one quote in there where, you know, she says, yeah, you know, Paul was asking me to do this and, you know, and I, I said, okay, and what was I thinking, <laughs> you know? <laughs> But, you know, I mean, she worked hard, too. So uh, there's another thing that I think, you know, I, I think we should get on with the show. But so I'll just say this one more thing that I think people don't appreciate. But a number of people we spoke to, like, you know, engineers and people who work with them have mentioned uh, and that we also sort of noticed just listening very closely to the tracks and outtakes and things is that Linda's voice, Linda's singing is really an important part of the sound of wings i mean you listen yep. to anything yep. from another day to all the stuff on ram even things on wildlife especially on side two her you know even if paul is basically writing the harmony lines she her voice has a quality that mixed really well with paul's and denny lane's and was absolutely crucial to the sound of wings and what people liked about wings so people can criticize her keyboard playing and she came along as a you know a beginning keyboardist at a time when in the rock world we were sort of seeing this transition into Prague and all of the keyboardists we're seeing are you know and not just Prague we got Elton John so you're seeing Elton John and Keith Emerson and Rick Wakeman and you know a lot of super virtuoso keyboard players and then you've got Linda which must have made it even harder on her but the fact is Paul wanted her on stage with him Paul wanted her on tour with him and um, you know that's what it was so they found workarounds and uh, they produced in the in the volume that we just finished I mean they produced an incredible amount of music so yeah 
there we are. I can't wait. I can't wait to read the book. But I will say just very quickly, based on the last few points you made, uh, in reading a book like Eight Arms to Hold You, which is like a Bible for me, you come to know that there's a lot of songs in Paul's catalog that he started a certain year that he didn't finish till many years later. Right. Even going back to the Beatle days, there's a lot mm-hmm. that he wrote in, in the Beatles that didn't come out till his solo career. That's right. So, um, But it's going to be interesting to me, especially in those early years when he was so incredibly prolific, especially during the Ram period there, how he juggled family life with that. For someone for whom, you know, family is is everything, you know, so devoted to Linda and to the kids and how we mixed it all together and, and juggled the time, you know. They were always there. Mm. You know, the kids, which at that point was Heather and uh, Mary, who was only like, a, you know, a couple of years old, were at every session. You know, mm. they were in the control right. room. Mary had a playpen. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> And one of the engineers at A&R was saying, you know, one of his jobs was that like if she was crawling across the top of the recording console, he just had to make sure that she didn't push any faders. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But she never did get any engineering uh, credit on any of the albums. No, no. uh, Because once she crawled across the the console, she should be like assistant engineer, you know. That's right. There must be a, uh, a union rule or something. <laughs> this is going to be an incredible read when it does come out. And I'm sure that what we will do here is take you out of the host chair, the co-host chair, and make you the guest. And it sounds as though it's going to be probably have to happen over a couple of shows with the amount of material that you've that you've dug up for this book that uh, we looks as though we're going to get in the spring. Volume one of the Paul McCartney Bible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, today, on today's things we said today, we've got a couple of things. Ken's got the news, as always. And uh, then you have um, a little segment, Ken, that you did with Charles Rosenay, which we'll get to after the news. Uh, There's an an event coming up that Charles is organizing around John Lennon's 80th birthday. And then the topic of today's show will be John Lennon as we approach the 80th birthday. We'll just share some thoughts about John, our personal thoughts and opinions and whatnot on today's show. So I guess you could say this is uh, the 80th birthday salute to John Lennon, this edition of Things We Said Today. So, but first, it's news time with Ken Michaels. Thank you, Darren. And there's a ton of news all about John and special events that are about to happen, concerts that will be virtual um, and I'm going to run them down for you, and you can pick and choose, if you're interested, which ones you might be observing. There's so many of them. And unfortunately, I only say unfortunately because it's all, most of it is all the same day on John's birthday. But uh, it's going to be tough deciding how you want to spend John's birthday. But you've got a lot of choices here. First of all, the Fest for Beatle fans, which was scheduled to take place the weekend of October 9th through the 11th, was canceled due to COVID-19, but it has been rescheduled for March 19th to the 21st next year at the Hyatt Regency in Jersey City. If you made hotel reservations, they will automatically be moved to the new dates. If you already bought tickets, they'll be rolled over to the new dates in March as well. However, instead of having a virtual fest, as they have been doing the last few times because of coronavirus, the fest will be putting on a virtual John Lennon birthday celebration on John's birthday. 
It'll be from 5 to 11 p.m. It'll include live performances from the Weaklings and Billy J. Kramer, plus with the brand new John Lennon tribute album from Gem Records called Gem Records Celebrates John Lennon. Many of the artists who covered John's music on that album will be performing at this concert as well. I mentioned the Weaklings who are on this new compilation, but also the Gripweeds, the Anderson Council, Jonathan Pushkar, Richard Barone, and uh, the Midnight Callers. It'll all be live from Daryl's house, Daryl Hall's place in Pauling, New York. Also part of this entire evening celebration, uh, there will be special guests, and I'm not sure if this means interviews or just messages from them, but Peter Asher will be there, Joey Molland, Bob Gruen, Ivor Davis, Terry Sylvester, and also uh, Ken Womack, who's just written a brand new book on John Lennon, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. He'll be doing his own presentation as well. And uh, the author, Jude Sutherland Kessler, who's written a whole series of books on John, will be doing her own presentation. And if you want more information about that, you can go to thefest.com. Also on John's birthday, on John's website, johnlennon.com, they will be offering fan-made content and uh, previously unheard and unseen Lennon music and films. There's no specific time given for this, but it's throughout John's birthday on October the 9th. We will be talking with Charles Rosnay. I will be in just a few moments. You're going to hear him talk about a special event he has for John on October the 9th. And uh, I'm sure many of you have heard about this, but Sean Lennon uh, will be uh, taking part in a radio special called John Lennon at 80 that will air on BBC Radio 2 and BBC Sounds, in which he'll be interviewing Paul McCartney, Julian Lennon, his half-brother, and Elton John who's actually Sean's godfather. This will first be aired in two one-hour installments on October the 3rd and 4th at 4 p.m. That's Eastern Standard Time. And according to You Discover Music, Radio 2 and BB Sounds will also have a two-hour special, John Lennon Live at the BBC, featuring a mix of archival interviews and performances that will air also on October the 4th. That's at 2 p.m. So the way I understand it, on October the 4th, you've got John Lennon live at the BBC, followed by the second installment of Sean's special. Okay? And uh, I do believe you'll be able to stream this on their website. I have no idea whether or not any of the shows that I'm going to mention here will be available online after the event for streaming. All right? In addition, the group Theatre Within who ever since John's death, they've been doing Lennon tribute shows every year around December 8th. They'll be doing a live streaming concert, which will run for several days from October the 9th at 7 p.m. through October the 12th at midnight, again, Eastern time. It will include performances from Jackson Brown, Natalie Merchant, Patti Smith, Taj Mahal, Yorma Kalkinen, Roseanne Cash, Joan Osborne, Willie Nile, Betty Levette, and others. This is a free streaming event. You can go to Lennon Tribute 40, the number 40.org. And this is a benefit concert to support Theater Within's Real Love Fund. Hmm. So, a lot of things happening, and there's a few more I have to mention. Um, there's a Lennon Tribute concert streaming live, also on John's birthday, that will feature Peter Gabriel, Graham Goldman from 10CC, also Ringo's All-Stars, Katie Tunstall, John Ilsley from Dire Straits, and others. This will begin at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and it's live from the Hard Rock in London. 
This is actually their second what they call Dear John concert, and proceeds will benefit War Child UK, an organization that seeks to help impoverished families across the world's war zones. So all these events that I've just mentioned, with the exception of the, uh, the Sean Lennon special and the other one that the BBC is running, the Sean Lennon special and John Lennon live at the BBC, those are on October 3rd and the 4th. But everything else is on John's birthday, and some of them run past John's birthday. Plus, a new John Lennon documentary will air in December on BritBox US. That's a streaming service operated by BBC Studios and ITV. It's called Lennon's Last Weekend. And it will feature John's last interview, which he gave to Andy Peebles for the BBC Radio, and also new contributing interviews. And BritBox has more than a million subscribers in the U.S. and is rolling out on uh, 25 countries right now. Some news about Julian. Uh, last Monday on September the 21st, he was honored as he was named a UNESCO Center for Peace 2020 Cross-Cultural and Peace Crafter uh, Award Laureate. Julian was acknowledged for his humanitarian efforts through the White Feather Foundation and his support for many causes. And don't forget, you can also now watch Julian's new documentary called Kiss the Ground, which is all about how the world can end climate change. And he is actually the executive producer for this documentary, which is now streaming on Netflix. Julian's done a lot of work for quite a while about uh, the environment and how to protect it. I remember reading years ago that he was providing water to countries that, that needed it because their water was polluted. You know, he's always doing work, humanitarian work that has to do with the environment. So... I'm glad to see him being acknowledged for all this. More news, and uh, this has gotten a lot of Beatles fans excited. Rumors abound concerning a new Paul McCartney album, with it being called McCartney 3. Now, um, I joked about this as a possibility, because in uh, GQ magazine, Paul just gave a very strong interview. And in it, he said he was writing new songs, and this is separate from his It's a Wonderful Life musical. So many fans have been speculating with Paul in quarantine. That's the perfect opportunity for him to make a McCartney 3 album. A photo of Paul popped up online of him in front of a recording console taken in August in Sag Harbor, Long Island. So there's speculation that might be tied into his recordings for this album. And a website with a domain name of McCartney3.com has already been taken. So it's been reported as a very strong rumor that Paul will have a new album out in December, McCartney 3. And if the reports we're reading are true, we could be could be hearing an official announcement in about two weeks from now, possibly with a single being released at the same time. Any comments on this, guys? Alan, how about you? Uh, it sounds exciting. I mean, you know, uh, he's had plenty of time. He has a fairly super studio at his... Uh, disposal and you know I mean a lot of people don't like McCartney too there are various people who have had mixed feelings about the first McCartney apart from maybe I'm amazed but 
what he does when he's totally on his own doing these multi-track things where he's playing all the instruments is, has always been kind of interesting and, and, and experimental in some ways. And, uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he comes up with this time. Yeah. Do you have any, any speculation what you think he might do? Of course, it's all a guess. Yeah, I mean, I, who knows? I mean, I would think that... And this is, you know, it's totally speculation, as you say, but there are things he believes in and there are things that he has observed about the world and touched on even in, uh, you know, Egypt Station um, about the ecology, about, you know, where the whole meat thing fits into the ecology, about certain other political things. And he's never been a political guy in terms of his music with, you know, one exception. Um, but... I think maybe at this point he might be ready to comment on the world because the world in this year and the fact that everyone's been in lockdown, he's been in lockdown, I, I don't see how he could not comment on it. You know, I'm not saying he has to, but it just yeah. seems to me that he, you know, he's a thoughtful person. He has ideas. And uh, I think maybe this album could be, you know, his comment on the, this whole crazy world of uh, 2020. Mm. So maybe your interest lies more in lyrically what he's about to say? Well, I think lyrically might be the difference between this album and others. Musically, um, I'm hoping that, you know, the, the circumstances uh, of, you know, sort of being, uh, you know, locked down and, you know, in his studio leads him to do more experimental stuff. But, you know, actually, he doesn't need that to do experimental stuff. He's done plenty of experimental stuff. But maybe just the, the, the situation and the sort of spirit of the moment, you know, for, for our time right now, which is different from anything any of us have ever lived through, including True. him, and he's older than us. Uh, you know, I just kind of think it might push him to do something a little different than what we're used to. That you know, I'd be, I'd be very surprised if this album comes out and it's you know, silly love songs volume two. I mm. think um, I don't expect it to be Give Ireland Back to the Irish volume two either. But I just think that it it may be more circumspect. He may be saying, you know. I'm getting up there. I've been here a long time. I'm looking at this world. This world has become a little bit crazy, and I want to talk about it. And that means musically, too. You know, mm. that's just a guess. And I hope, I really okay. hope I'm right because that's what I would yeah. like to hear. But he's not known for being political, but he's also done like big boys bickering or that's even right. despite repeated warnings. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, but it'll be interesting if he says anything about the current situation of what's going on in the world on this on this new album. Darren, you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, if it's um, I mean, who knows if he's going to actually approach what he if, if he's recorded, he's approached it already. Who knows if he's actually making a, you know, consciously trying to make something in the same vein as McCartney and McCartney, too. If he does that, if he's, you know, I expect that it would probably be more of a, a sonically interesting album, at less so lyrically. Those two albums are not lyrically heavy albums. 
you know, and they both have basically uh, the concept uh, behind both of them is uh, more of a sense of musical adventure, you know, having the time uh, and the convenience of the studio right there in the house, in his house. And, you know, he just turn on the tape machines and just play around with melodies and ad lib stuff and see where certain things go. And I would think that I would expect that type album from him, but it'd be interesting to see if he actually is doing a McCartney three, if he does it with McCartney and McCartney two in the back of his mind, if that makes sense. If he's thinking like in terms of, you know, let's just turn on the tape machines and see what happens, see what comes out here. You know, and uh, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, like, for example, with the Fireman, the third Fireman album did differ from the first two uh, in a way. Uh, So I guess there's no rule saying that if there is a McCartney three, it has to have that sort of musical adventure, that adventurous uh, musical approach that one and two had. So we'll see. I don't know. I was just thrilled to see um, hear this because it sounded to me like it would potentially going to be a bit maybe of a throwback to some vintage McCartney sounding stuff. If in fact he, uh, you know, is doing uh, McCartney three, like he did one and two. Mm. I, I mean, that and that could be anything. I mean, that could be, you know, uh, musically adventurous. You assume he's playing all the instruments, obviously, and doing everything in the, in that DIY approach of the past two albums. I think it, could potentially end up being musically a throwback and that's pretty exciting but i don't know about anything that's going to be heavy lyrically you know i don't know if this would be the the album and uh i've often felt that when paul does get political usually his efforts tend to be a little awkward Mm. um you know that's not his forte to be topical but as far as speculation, it's always fun to speculate. I just have a feeling, this is just a, you know, a gut feeling on my part, that it's going to be more of a stripped down, like a first McCartney album. Him yeah, and an acoustic just, guitar, something very simple. I, of course, I have no idea. what It could be anything with him. So right. um, if we can get another Every Night out of him, <laughs> or uh, you know, another Teddy Boy, or, or any of those songs, I'd be thrilled. So I'll uh, tell you one thing, though. Listening to Alan talk about the fact that back in the day, he was always busy, always doing something. No mm. downtime. If he's been locked down uh, like, you know, like I've been, I could only imagine the quantity of music that he's created because there's been nothing else really for him to do outside of his house, which means that 50 years from now, when we have the 50th anniversary box set of McCartney three, that's going to be some <laughs> huge, huge release. Yeah. I hope we all live that long. <laughs> Let's get on with some more news. Ringo Starr sent a message on Instagram a few weeks ago. I'm having a great time in the studio. I love my bass drum. Mike, I'm in the <laughs> middle of an EP. <laughs> Peace and love. I-, I believe Mike is the name of either his bass drum or his drum set. But he's saying that he is recording an EP. So just like he had mentioned not that long ago, instead of making albums, this is the direction he's going to go in. So it sure would be nice if we get new music from Paul and Ringo by the end of the year. Um, Also, a brand new trailer is out for the Get Back book. 
which will accompany the film release. It contains previously unpublished photos from Ethan Russell and Linda McCartney, as well as photos from unseen film footage, also candid conversations, uh, behind-the-scenes stuff for the sessions. And it is now available for pre-order due out August 31st next year. I love this. You get a pre-order, but it's not coming out until August 31st. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> okay uh well you could pre-order any time before august 31st yeah anyway. as if there isn't enough stuff to spend money on right now i'm gonna <laughs> buy something that's not gonna i can't have for for 11 months mm. yeah but that way All right. when it comes out you won't be out of money because you'll have pre-ordered it now <laughs> there you see there's some logic <laughs> okay. behind this all right all right just a few more things to mark the 40th anniversary of the mccartney 2 album The Brazilian duo Lindsay and Isaac have covered Paul's ballad Waterfalls, and they have Lawrence Juber to add his guitar work to it. You can find this video now on YouTube. Uh, The ever-busy Ken Womack, who, as I said before, has his new book on John Lennon out right now, John Lennon 1980. He has another book coming out called All Things Must Pass Away, Harrison, Clapton, and Other Assorted Love Songs, written with Jason Krupa. Amazon says its release date is July 20th next year. Okay. Um, And there's one last thing I will mention here. Uh, Another book on John and John's last years is coming out. It's called Prisoner of Love Inside the Dakota with John Lennon by Peter Doggett. Peter is also the author of the much-praised Beatle book, You Never Give Me Your Money, and also the art and music of John Lennon. It's based on the access the author had to John's personal writings. He was able to read some of John's private diaries, never revealed to the public or described accurately in other Lennon books. This one is due out April the 13th. And thanks to John Bazzini, who runs the Beatles in Print Together and Solo Facebook page for that information. So that's all the news we have for you here. Only right now, before we get into our main topic about John Lennon, I spent some time with Charles Rosney, our good friend who's had a long history doing Beatle work, the Good Day Sunshine fanzine, trips to England every year since 1983. And um, there is a John Lennon tribute concert that will take place on John's birthday, October 9th, which is a streaming event. So let's hear from my conversation with Charles right now. Charles Rosney, welcome back to Things We Said Today, a frequent guest on the show, and no doubt you'll be back plenty more times if I have any say in it. That's great, Ken. Thank you. (laughs) You have a special event planned for John's birthday, October 9th. Why don't you tell our listeners all about it? Well, you know, um, for the 70th and 75th birthdays for John, we did in 2010 and 2015 live shows with the John Lennon tribute show called Lennon Live. Uh, recreating what might have been a concert that John did had he been with us. And uh, obviously we were going to do it again this year and had it planned for actually 14 months. I've been promoting it for over a year and uh, as a live show. But of course, Mm. COVID hit and we had to move it to a streaming event, which I thought, oh my gosh, I can't believe we have to do that. But you know what? It's better. I mean, now everyone in the world can tune in. On October 9th, you know, for John Lennon's 80th birthday, it's called Remember Lennon, Imagine 80. And instead of it being live in a theater, it's, it's live throughout the world. So everyone can watch it on their own device. Where is it actually taking place? On what stage? 
So it was originally going to take place in Norwalk. Um, and we had a great location, which I thought was really convenient for New Yorkers, Connecticut, all over New England. But the band is uh, Pennsylvania based. So mm. they're doing it out of a studio uh, in Philadelphia with all the technical things that are needed, all the cameras, all the audio equipment, the stuff that I don't know how to make things stream. Uh, <laughs> that's part of what they're doing. So Philadelphia is where it's coming out of. And the guy who's playing John, it, does he look close, uh, you know, in resemblance? Well, you know, Scott Arch has been a Lennon now uh, since the early 80s. He's been doing it a very long time. And, you know, so the question is, why did I pick them over? You know, I've got so many friends in this business. There's so many great Beatle bands. But most of those bands, whether they have the best Lennon or not, they don't have a splinter Lennon group. So the group Beatlemania now, which is, you know, one of the elite Beatle bands in the country, also have Scott Arch's... Lennon Live, which goes out and does a Lennon tribute show. So it was already uh, a band ready to go. Now, couple that with a great set list. We really, you know, knocked heads and came up with songs that not only people are going to guess would be common songs and expected to be played, but some, you know, B-sides, some deep cuts. We wanted to, you know, try to please everybody. You know, you know more than anyone that can't be done. When Ringo tours, when Paul tours, we always have these discussions on what they could have done, what we would like to have heard. With this case, we're doing the, the early mop top stuff. Um, we're throwing in um, the, the touring years, the psychedelic era, the, the breakup years, right up through his solo career. So in a two-hour span, you're going to get a real um, variance of all John Lennon's eras and hopefully will please everybody. And that's the live concert aspect of it. As you know, there's one other aspect of this event which might make it a little more special, and that's we've um, solicited a lot of our friends in the industry, a lot of rock stars, music people, Beatle friends, to just send in a video message. Um, we did it back when we had the Monkees convention, and everyone you know, sent their remembrances of Peter Tork. And I go, wow, we're a lot, we have a streaming event. We can do this all over the world. Let's make it a little special, something we wouldn't have done if it was live. Uh, at, on a theater stage, let's do this and in, in, incorporate it into the event. So the first 15 or so minutes of people like Gary Puckett, Lulu, Tommy Rowe, Tommy James, Mary Wilson of the Supremes, all my you know rock and roll friends are mm. sending birthday wishes to John and to the fans. And then in the middle of it, when the band does their um, costume change and they do a quick intermission, we'll have the other half of that. And it's, you know, people who... Uh, had something to do with John Lennon's life. Gary Von Sayoff, you know, from Elephant's Memory. Leon Wilds, um, the, the immigration's attorney. It goes on and on. But I don't want to give away all the surprises. There's a lot of really cool people who sent in messages. So people who tune into the Remember Lennon show will get to hear not only a concert of what John might have done had he been with us and still, you know, rocking, uh, plus all these great star messages. Well, you know, I've been to your Lennon tribute shows, and they're wonderful, as well as the Peter Tork Memorial, too. So are the songs going to be all chronological if you're doing no. a costume change? So no. you're going to bounce around from yeah, different so, eras? so that was the first thought. You know, do we do a chronological, and does he go from the boots and suits, you know, with the wig straight through? But then there would have to be five intermissions. And mm. guess what? John would not have done that. John, <laughs> John would not have put on, you know, the collarless jacket. So this is, we're trying to, you know, come up with two um, co costume changes that were more, you know, the long-haired, maybe the Imagine era John, 
and also maybe the, you know, live in New York City type John, you know, so we're going with two of them. And uh, we're going to leave it to your imagination to guess which two those are. But, yeah, no, not 15 costume changes and not chronological. We're trying to do a show that John might have just, I want to play this song after this song. And, uh, you know, this one rocks. So let's do this rocker together and let's do these slow ones together. But you're going to find a few surprises in the set. Sounds more like what Paul would do for his own set list. You know, Paul goes all over the place. Absolutely. And, And Ringo does, too. Um, mm. Ringo's is a little different because of the format with the all-star band, but it, it, yeah, I think that's how they do it. And I think that's how John would have done it. And let's see if, uh, let's see if we get it close. Cause it'll be interesting to hear what the fans have to say after the show and what they liked and, you know, what they would have rather have been included. Mm. Since we're doing a special right now on John Lennon on things we said today, would you like to just make a little comment of what John Lennon has meant to you in your lifetime and why he's so meaningful to you? Wow. So, Ken, you know, that's such a tough question because (laughs) the Beatles, you know, obviously changed your life. You know, you've been on the air forever with Beatles shows. They've changed my life, producing conventions into festivals, uh, publishing Good Day Sunshine for so many years, uh, bringing fans to Liverpool since 1983. You know, if it wasn't for those four guys, you know, John's, you know, such an influence in so many ways. You know, I was asked that question. I thought, well, sure peace and, and and you know spreading the word and you know love one another and all that's imagine you know no all the great messages is phenomenal but strip it all down and you take away the humor and you take away that extra it's still the music it's the music above all beyond all it's that voice it's that 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 chuckle in the voice it's you know that you can't put your finger on it he's like no one who ever lived and no one who will ever be thereafter, you know, and, and just as I'm talking about it, it's bringing me a smile and bringing me a good feeling. And I think that's what John did. I think that's what the Beatles will always do. Have you given any thought to after this concert's over, will it be available online to watch for those who missed it? So I uh, think the way this streaming platform works you can order it and watch it live at 7 o'clock on October 9th with the uh, link and the, and the code you get. Or you can watch it later. And I think that's the great thing. If someone observes the Sabbath and they can't watch it on Friday night, they can watch it the next day or whatever. If they have another event that they want to stream on Friday night, well, guess what? They can hold the code and watch it another time. So the great thing about this particular streaming ticket format is you can watch it when it's on, you can watch it later, you can actually stop it and continue it later, you can rewind it fast forward. It's, it's like a pay-per-view um, on demand more than anything else. So that's really a great aspect of it. The other great thing is if you're in uh, England and it's midnight, you don't want to watch it at midnight, you can watch it the next day. Or if, it, or if you're in Melbourne, Australia, and you it's two in the morning or two, whatever, whatever time, I'm trying, I don't know exactly, you can watch it at your convenience. Okay. All right. But do you have to pay for it before the event starts, or can you pay for it later? You can't pay for it afterwards. No, it has to be before. Like, you can't pay for a concert ticket after you've seen the concert. Correct. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And if people want to know more, is there a website they can go to? There is. Well, there's the Facebook page, which is, you know, facebook.com, uh, remember Lennon. But the very best place to go is www.rememberlennon.com. It's got all the information about the show, about the artist, 
about what you're going to see and what you can enjoy. And of course, it has the link right for the tickets that you can get and watch it on your own device, whether it's your smart TV or your phone or your tablet or laptop, you'll be able to watch Remember Lennon. It's www.rememberlennon.com. Well, like I tell my listeners, you always put together a great show, so I highly advise our fans listening to the show right now, if you can, to check out this show. And uh, much luck, Charles, with Remember Lennon. Thank you so much, Ken. If there's any other streamings that are going on, watch those too. If people can find a way to get them all in, you know, we don't have a Lennon 80th birthday more than once. So if there's more than one, try to get them all in and enjoy them all. Okay, and thanks for doing all the tremendous work you've done on the Beatles for so many years. Mutual, Ken. Thank you as well. So once again, if you're interested in watching this uh, streaming event, all you got to do for all the information that you need is visit the website rememberlennon.com. That's rememberlennon.com. I'm sure it's going to be a tremendous show envisioning a Lennon concert. If he, were, if he was alive today, what would it be like? So, so many choices of what to do on October 9th. They'll have to lock us all away. <laughs> Because we got so many, it's so many streaming events in particular. It's it's incredible. So let's get on with our main topic, Darren. Well, John Lennon's 80th birthday um, is coming on October 9th. And uh, I thought several weeks ago when we were discussing what we might do for John's birthday, that we would just kind of keep it simple and discuss what Lennon means to the three of us. And uh, maybe you know, personal recollections of whatnot about uh, John, his music with the Beatles solo. Uh, I've often pointed out in past shows that I kind of came to the Beatles first through the solo stuff. I was five when they broke up. And um, so for me, learning about gaining an appreciation for the music and art of John Lennon, it started first with what he was doing following the breakup. And I thought that we would uh, should chat a bit about, you know, all things Lennon and anything we might want to share as we approach what would have been his 80th birthday. And then, of course, in December, um, you know, unfortunately, the 40th, which is mind boggling to think it's been 40 years, but the 40th anniversary of his uh, of his murder. So let's open up the floor to all three of us at the same time. Ken Allen. Darren, yes, okay. John Lennon. It's kind of um, strange to think that, you know, that just as a mathematical thing, that he, when he turns 80, that it means that we have been without him as long as we were with him, you know? Mm. I mean, it's exactly that, that you know, ratio of half here. It's, 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 yes. it's, it's odd, you know? Mm-hmm. It's also odd to think. I remember... Once I surpassed 40, my first thought was, I've outlived John, and how strange that seemed. Wow. And also thinking, you know, Julian and Sean have outlived John. They've lived longer than he did. It's really, you know, kind of shocking to think that way, but it is true. Yeah. Let me ask the two of you this. When, maybe it was a song, maybe it was an event, it could be with the Beatles, it could have been after, and sure, it would be with the Beatles. When did it occur to the two of you that you know he's just not another rock musician that there was something you know very substantial to what his what he was singing about what he was writing about uh and 
also kind of to kind of come off that, when did you begin to discover the qualities that set him apart from the, the other three and maybe mainly McCartney, his, his writing partner? Hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, it has to have been during the Beatles era because, you know, I, I sort of followed that from the beginning. And um, the thing is that you you had the impression of all of them as being, you know, not just rock musicians. But then again, there were a lot of other rock musicians you could say that about, too. I mean, I was pretty... Um, devoted to knowing what was going on in the Stones and Cream and Hendrix and, and all of that. But the Beatles had this, uh, this special sort of um, foresightedness where it was apparent really early on that, that we're talking about four very distinct personalities that happened to fit together. And then just once you got to know their voices and once you got to sort of realize that the person singing a song was probably the person who wrote the song. You know, John's stuff began to stand out on its own in a special way, you know? I mean, and especially when you got to... I don't want to say that just the late stuff was was great. I mean, you know, you, you listen to Day Tripper and that was John, and you listen to, uh, you know, a lot of the early stuff too. I mean, Help and and all these things. But, you know, when you get to something like Strawberry Fields, that was like really a watershed. I mean, musically and lyrically, that was just so out of the blue, you know. And I think maybe that might have been, you know, I, I can't remember for sure when I really thought of John as, you know, particularly within the Beatles, exceptional, because they all were. But also the fact, I think, that he used to be the one who would give the most thoughtful interviews. Um, and especially towards the end of the Beatles time, um, when he was coming out and doing his peace campaigns and, and that kind of stuff. And, you know, when he came here to do peace campaigns, like, you know, in, in, in Montreal and, uh, and had access to American interviewers like Howard Smith Howard Smith was really important, I think, in, in shaping my view of John Lennon because he would put on these interviews that would run an hour or two hours or two and a half hours. And, uh, you know, even before the Rolling Stone interview came out, you, you would get a sense of what this guy has to say for himself at length. And it was always really sort of, you know, interesting and sensible, a little revolutionary. And, uh, you know, in that... I think probably is uh, is is what made John seem like such an exceptional character in the rock world, totally, and even in the context of the Beatles. Okay, I was thinking that uh, my introduction was through the song "Power to the People," hmm. and and I don't mean to. I'm the. I, I always go back and you know state where I was in my life at that time, but. For John, it was like jumping into a pool head first. I was six years old when that record came out. And, you know, here I was being really introduced to Lennon through his political material. Mm -hmm. Very political in the case of Power to the People. So from the get-go, you know, I sort of had this picture in my mind that John was kind of the conscience of the Beatles, whether or not that's totally accurate, it's also like, you know, maybe not as cut and dry as the thinking that Paul was the Melanie man and John was the 
the uh, lyrics guy in the Beatles. Well, it wasn't quite that clean of a of a separation, but from the very beginning, from me, Lennon came off as being the the social conscience in the band. So I would look to him for the commentary, mm-hmm. uh, and whether or not that's uh, an appropriate way of, of approach, approaching his music, I'm not sure. But that's how. It was for me. John, Paul gave you the melodies. Paul Paul was like relaxing, uh, watching a variety show. John was reading the newspaper. <laughs> That's hmm. interesting. When you listen to their music. And I had that kind of like from day one because my first major exposure to John Lennon was power to the people. And then, of course, like was the case for all four of them, I went back and picked up on the Beatles, you know, kind of in retrospect so that'll always be my first kind of impression from the beginning was the political uh and the thinking man's side to uh, to the beatles ken very interesting you may end up being quoted on that darren how you compare john and paul <laughs> just now i never heard that said before that's a very unique quote but uh, yeah and, good, and, and i really I really don't, I, I don't, sometimes don't like saying that because it is too cut and dry, but then you think mm. about it. And I think more times than not, you know, John's, John tended to be lyrically heavier. Paul tended to, I think, come out with more consistently stronger melodies. But then again, this is still, you know, Lennon still gave us Jealous Guy and Woman and these, uh, you know, these melodically rich songs mm-hmm. uh so you know you can and yet you can't say it was that cut and dry but it's, i think it's an image i have in my head an opinion i have and i think a lot of people uh you know think that way yeah very interesting with me uh, it all started with the beatles from the moment i heard i want to hold your hand but the thing is i was only four years old when that was going on. So as the Beatles were doing all this tremendous music and changing and evolving and progressing so rapidly, my mind didn't think that way. It was all just good music. And I liked, Mm -hmm. you know, every song. I mean, that's what, what separated the Beatles from a lot of other bands at the time. Although, you know, I was a little kid. I wasn't all that analytical back then, but if I listened to albums from other groups, there'd be songs that I like on the albums, but not all the way through. I listened to a Beatles album. I liked everything. And I didn't make comparisons between John's songs and Paul's songs. In the beginning, they were Beatles songs. You know, you didn't think that way. Later on, as you study the music, then you can see the separation. But um, And certainly, as they were really getting into very experimental stuff, especially around the time of Revolver or doing songs like Strawberry Fields Forever, my mind as a little kid wasn't thinking, gee, how innovative is this? It was just the latest song, and it's great, and I love it. Later on, you begin to appreciate what they put into their songs. But uh, as a little kid, I couldn't fully absorb that. It was just the greatest music. But Mm -hmm. it was really in the 70s that um, I really, the Beatles had more of an impact with me through their solo music, which remains through this day even though I deeply more and more appreciate what they did as a band today. But I was very affected by what John was doing uh, in particular in the early 70s with the Imagine album 
as someone who wasn't really that political yet, I couldn't fully understand sometime in New York City. And Plastic on Band is a very tough album to listen to for a little kid. You know, it's it's really rough to go through songs like those that were just so cathartic for him. And, uh, you know, to hear something like My Mummy's Dead or even <laughs> uh, God, where he's he's cutting down the idols, you know, past and present, is that, you know, my mind wasn't ready for that. That's something I had to appreciate much later on. But I think I was really taken in with a lot of the music that John was doing during that middle period from Mind Games and, and Walls and Bridges. I love the songs on those two albums. Mind Games is my favorite of all of John's albums. But the fact of the matter is that John's music always was very personal. And um, whether they're songs that were written about Yoko or a more universal theme, they were still very personal. And those songs really touched me a lot, the songs on Mind Games and Walls and Bridges, knowing that he was away from Yoko, knowing how much that meant to him to put his heart into certain songs. There are songs like I Suma Sen, which are, you know, it's not a well-known song in John Lennon's canon that I very much treasure. Songs like that and Out the Blue and I Know I Know, and those songs really affected me the most. And, um, you know, over time, I came to appreciate more of his solo music and what he did in the Beatles. And as someone who has always been about the music first, John Lennon became such a fascinating person once you came to study everything that he said in all of his interviews and what he put into his music and what he shared with us in the Beatle days and through Yoko. There's so much fascination in him and all that he did. You know, it, it's, it's the whole package that has affected me now to the point where, you know, I miss him just as much for his music today. And it, it pains me to think if he was alive today, we're missing 40 more years of music from him. But oh, yeah. on top of all that, what he'd be saying today, mm -hmm. the state of the world, what, what we're going through now, what we went through on 9-11, those are times when I miss John even more. Whether you agree with his, his politics or his worldviews, he was fascinating, and he spoke his mind. And to some degree, the, the person, the whole package, is just as important to me as the music. And sometimes I can't believe I'm saying that, because with me, it's always been about the music first. But there's so much more to John. He was so multifaceted. And he had such a, you know, he, he had a mind that went beyond his own life and his own problems. He had a worldview, which he expressed. And not every rock star can do that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think really, most of all, in the, in the 70s, his music affected me, which led me to appreciate everything that he's done. I think there was also hmm. a kind of defiance that he projected, even in the early Beatles years. And, you know, it may very well have been because he was on stage without his glasses, you know. And so he looked like he was sort of squinting, but, in, in, you know, the, with his face and the way he looked, he looked like he was being defiant. And and he was defiant in, in uh, press conferences and interviews and things. There was, a, there was this sense that he was saying that, you know, as a kid, you were picking up as a possible approach to life, which is, I can do what I want to do. I'm going to say what I want to say. And, you know, unlike other people who 
take that view and have done so more recently, it came with a kind of sense of responsibility as well. It's just not like I'm, I'm going to do what I want to do because I can. It was I'm going to do what I want to do because this is what's right. You know, I'm going to Brian doesn't want us talking about the Vietnam War and racism and other things that we have something to say about. Fine, we're going to do it because we have something to say and, you know, and people should hear it. If they don't like us mm-hmm. for it, too bad, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was that whole aspect of him as being outspoken and just, you know, saying what was on his mind. And I guess the fact that a lot of what he was saying that was on his mind is what people, you know, in my age group also believed. And like, here was a guy who was saying it. So we had a sense of him also as like, almost like a civic leader beyond being a great musician who wrote stuff we loved. You know, he was he was saying things that mirrored what we generally believed as a generation. And, uh, you know, and he was out there putting those ideas out. That was right. important, I thought. Yeah. He had the guts to say what he felt. And even if the other Beatles felt the same way, it was him that said it. Mm-hmm. Whereas Paul would be more cautious about mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. Always be concerned about diplomacy, you know, mm-hmm. but John was just out there. And uh, he was their spokesman in many ways. Yeah, you did get the impression that even though he was the one saying it, you had the impression that they all believed in it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, like you didn't hear them say, well, you know, that's just John just says that I, I'm totally the opposite. You know, you, that didn't happen, you know. Right. You know, just this uh, a quality of John's just a slight alteration of the topic that kind of I became aware of as I've gotten older is that. Uh, there was a relatability uh, to John. He was one of the first, I guess, if not the first writer who tended to write introspectively, mm-hmm. um, you know, share what was going on in his life and his mind, his feelings, bear his soul before Dylan did it. You know, I don't, I, I'm, I'm making a generalization here, but, you know, Dylan tended to always be, topical and writing about uh the times which by the way they are a changing sorry mm. I, I couldn't i couldn't resist <laughs> yeah. whereas lenin tended lenin tended to look inward and would not hesitate to expose you know his his uh, vulnerabilities and his maybe lack of uh confidence and it made him relatable to uh to the everyman you know, this guy was not afraid to go out there and and bear his soul, talk about his upbringing, talk about his family life, talk about how, what made him tick. Uh, and there's another unique quality about him as the writer. Yeah, he was maybe he was the social. He was the conscience rather of the Beatles. But at the same time, he was this writer who, you know, looked inward first and bared his soul. And his some of his stuff could even be a musical therapy session. Mm-hmm. for us yeah something else that i came to appreciate and is um you know maybe maybe uh one of the main qualities of his writing that i that i love is the you know is the uh the honesty and the uh personal aspect of what he you know what he wrote about and that's why when people criticize say the double fantasy milk and honey period john now 40 years old he uh, has spent five years 
as a house husband. Uh, he is uh, a domestic individual now. And there are some people that say that he lost his bite and he lost his, um, you know, he lost his sting he, that he had. That he had. Uh, and it couldn't be further th- from the truth because here he is now, you know, sharing with us his, the, you know, his uh, experiences as a 40-year-old dad who's been home making bread. And that's, you know, as relevant as what he was singing and writing about 10 years earlier. Five years uh, earlier, fifteen years earlier. Yeah, a couple of comments on what you just said, uh, Darren. I think the other Beatles also looked inward as well, not to the degree that John did. But if you take a look at George's spiritual stuff, like within yeah. you, without you, that that was like miles above. You know, it's so so much ahead of its time what he was expressing in a song like that, and even Paul's songs like "Maybe I'm Amazed" is a deeply personal song. Mm-hmm. In its own way. But um, going back to what you said about double fantasy at the time, a lot of the critics were saying that John's music hasn't changed at all, whereas Yoko's sounds contemporary. And a lot of people felt that Yoko's stuff was very refreshing and even more interesting than what John was doing. The thing that makes this even more painful is that we have no idea what direction John was going to go in after this. You know, he did make the other songs that ended up on Milk and Honey. But I know that John was extremely proud of Walking on Thin Ice. And we don't know if John's music might have gone in a very different direction, maybe closer to what Yoko was doing. He was listening to what a lot of other artists of that time were putting out. He expressed uh, that, that he liked the music of the Cars and the Talking Heads and Blondie. So we don't really know. If John would have just remained stagnant and and put out songs that stylistically were very much like what he had done before, even though they're truly great songs. I mean, the songs on Double Fantasy, I think, were fantastic. Um, But I'm just saying that, you know, going into different musical directions and genres and and uh, production and whatever have you. There was a contrast at, at times between what Yoko had on Double Fantasy and what John had. But uh, it is a shame that we'll never get to know what John might have done after all this. I could totally see John having embraced all of those new wave and edgier artists and and maybe by the 1983, I don't know, putting out a, a, you know, a really angular, edgy rock record that, you know, one of the Ramones guested on or something like that. Mm. Yeah. you know, you mentioned George and uh, and and Paul's tendency, especially George, was a good point because a lot of his spiritual stuff, all of the spiritual stuff, is inward looking. You wonder if 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 not uh, obvious, or if if maybe subtle, if John had an influence on his bandmates growing, you know, as they grew up as writers, you know, John, uh, George, and Paul seeing what John was sharing in his songs. Maybe that uh, may have opened a door a little bit for George when he would write to not hesitate to share his spiritual well, they were, side. They were all influenced by each other in different ways. I mean, you take a song like Strawberry Fields that made Paul want to write Penny Lane. And they mm-hmm. were both nostalgic oriented songs about their past or things they're affectionate about from their past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Um, I spent uh, some of the weekend listening to the new 
you know, two CD uh, set that's coming out. Um, and and I, I think I haven't, on one hand, made much of a secret of my general uninterest in compilations. But I have to say, this was, I thought, a really good selection of stuff. And I think the mixes uh, sound absolutely great. And there was something about listening to this compilation that, you know, she picked uh, really, in a lot of ways, the best stuff. Um, I think some people, you know, uh, people in the anti-Yoko universe that still apparently exists uh, will be upset that Angela was included, but you hear him singing on it. So um, hmm. it's, uh, I, I didn't have a problem with it. And, uh you know, it just it just struck me listening to the whole sequence of things, how beautiful a lot of it was. I mean, we give um, Paul a lot of credit for being the guy who could write the beautiful melodies, but you know, John was no slouch there either. Right, right. And you know, also the arrangements, the timbres of the different instruments on the recordings. I mean, this was all; these were all his choices, and. Uh, you know, I got to say that set really impressed me. Um, it could also be because I haven't listened to a lot of these songs and, and, and the albums that they're on for quite a while. You know, I mean, I've been sort of ensconced in the uh, McCartney universe for for such a long time now that, um, you know, I haven't had a, a chance. A chance to listen to other things and uh and so hearing it again after a while also was very kind of you know it was moving it was like you listen to the stuff and it was almost like the feeling i had after he was shot where you listen to some of these things and you just want to cry you know it's like yeah so you know, and, and and I was also thinking while it was on as it went from like, you know, one song to the next and like each one is, oh, yeah, that that's that was a great track. And this mix sounds really good. The instruments sound great. It's very clear. His voice sounds incredible. I was thinking that, you know, I mean, I wish I had gotten to interview him, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I like I can't complain about my career. I've had a really good career. I've interviewed most people I've ever wanted to, but like really number one on the list of disappointments is that I never had an opportunity to interview John. And I mentioned that to Yoko once during one of my interviews with her and, and her response was kind of, I, I don't know how to characterize it, but she said, Oh, you would have liked him. <laughs> it's like, Oh, duh. <laughs> and she said, no, you would have liked him. He was a really good man. You know, and oh, and yeah. uh, I don't know. I, I just it, it's just something I sort of, you know, I had gotten very close to being able to do. You know, I was just sort of coming up around that time and writing for the Times when I'd been writing for them for three years when he was shot. And I think in another couple of years, if he put out his next album, I probably could have done it, you know, for them for that. And uh, so, so close. And, yeah, you know, that would have been incredible. And you get the impression that once Double Fantasy was out, the dam had burst. Mm -hmm. And he was probably going to, at least for the maybe the first couple of years, be very active, you know, recording music, playing live. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and there would have been plenty of opportunities and he probably would have embraced so many different types of projects too. That's the impression I always got that once the dam was burst, it was like there was, there was a renewed excitement to what he, you know, look what I can do. And, you know, I want to do this. I want to do this. I've been thinking of that. I love that. Mm-hmm. You know, I yeah. think it would have been a very fruitful decade I think so. for, for John. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, taking five years off, which I think was such a daring thing to do, which I greatly admire him for. If you think about it all throughout the 60s and 70s, we kind of expected a new album every year from either the Beatles or, or the solo Beatles or, you know, most artists for that matter. And to suddenly just say, I'm leaving the music business at least for a while. I don't know if John knew at the time that he would definitely come back, but he needed those five years just to, uh, you know, clear his head and, and um, rediscover himself mm-hmm. and uh, realize that it makes him happy to make music in the studio. And so when he was ready, boy, was he ready. And yeah. as soon as he finished making Double Fantasy, he was on to the next few songs that would eventually make it to Milk and Honey. And, uh, you know, in the very beginning, it wasn't a definite thing that they were going to tour, but it was suggested in the studio. It might have been Jack Douglas. I have to read uh, Ken Womack's book again because he goes into this. But after a while, it became the definite thing that, yeah, they were going to tour and with this band. And they already made plans that it was going to be a John and Yoko tour. They were going to share the stage and go back and forth with different songs and they were very much into each other as a couple and presenting themselves as a couple. And, um, you know, there, there was so much excitement brewing from John and from Yoko. They were generally excited about where their lives were at at that point and supporting each other. And, uh, you know, you heard John say with Walking on Thin Ice, you've got a number one record here, Yoko. He really believed that, you know, he wanted yeah. success for Yoko. He wanted Yoko to be recognized and, um, you know, that was part of their marriage there. They were both very supportive of each other right, at the right. time. So uh, which makes it even, you know, sadder how excited he was at that time. It was very much like starting over, at least starting over his career part. But, uh, yeah, it's 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 such an incredible life that he led and very sad at, at the end. But it it is fascinating to look back on everything that he's done mm-hmm. right and we'll be reflecting i know i do we'll be reflecting again i'm sure here on the show as we approach the 40th anniversary of his death for me when the fall sets in and we get to his birthday in october i find that i tend to listen to more lennon music than i might the rest of the year um and uh and 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 we got the box set coming, the uh, anthology, Give Me Some Truth, that Alan was just talking about. That'll be getting lots of spins here in the DeVivo house. But I always find that the fall, uh, I've spent a lot of time zeroing in on, uh, on John's music and his career. If I could put you guys on the spot as we near the end of the show, if there was a single song that defines Lennon, what is it for the two of you? Hmm. And, I, and I'll tough. actually give you a second. I'll go first, uh, because for me, the the quintessential Lennon song is Give Me Some Truth. Yeah. Basically, because it's ballsy. And I've always looked at John as being a ballsy musician in his message, in his delivery, 
in his attitude, you know, it's got a political bent, uh, obviously. It's got a serious bite to it. Uh, and it's a great rock song as well, a great lyric, and a great example of him as one of the premier rock vocalists of all time, which we all know he was. Yeah. So Give Me Some Truth pops keeps popping into my head as the quintessential song. Maybe you don't have one. Maybe there's a few of them. But it put you on the spot. What do you got? What do you got? It's really tough for me. I mean, you can talk about a favorite, but that might not be the definitive Lennon song. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love Woman as a song to death. You know, it's such a great love song, and everything that he expressed in that song is so meaningful. And it also shows Yoko's influence on him when he says uh, the other half of the sky, you know, realizing the equality between men and, and women and you know, for showing me the meaning of success, certain lyrics in that song. That song really touches me a lot. But, you know, I tend to look at a song like God as a defining moment in his career because he's pretty mm-hmm. much saying, even without getting religious about God, but striking down all the, the idols uh, of the time, including the Beatles. <laughs> you know, this right. is my new life. This is my life with Yoko. Yoko and me. And that's reality. Yeah, and, I mean, that goes... Uh, and that goes back to what I was saying earlier on. Who wrote like that yeah. in 1970? Well, and also uh, the beginning today. of it, you know, God is a concept by which we measure our pain. You know, that's kind mm. of interesting, you know. First line yeah. of the song. Yeah. It, it's, you know, yeah. I can't that, pick that's, one. That's, okay. <laughs> that's what I want. Can I just add that's one of the things, one of the many things that I love about John is that he said so much in his songs with very few words. Just a line like that. God is a concept by which we measure our pain. I've often talked about the song How, mm-hmm. and that's uh-huh. a song that I think is so overlooked in John's catalog. You know, how can I go forward when I don't know which way I'm facing? Yeah. Every time I hear that line, it's like, wow. <laughs> it's such a simple statement, but, you know, the message in something like that is just powerful. And um, I often look at Watching the Wheels as one of the greatest songs he's ever mm. written because he, he manages in, in three verses and a chorus to explain his stance on, you know, the last five years of his life, that he was content to, you know, be on the sidelines. He didn't have to be in the public spotlight. He didn't have to care whether or not he was on the Billboard charts or not. I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. And he did it so effectively and just, you know, economically in just a few verses there are people Mm -hmm. in this world like bob dylan who's so brilliant at writing songs with a million verses in it and john could say the same thing in just a few verses and i think that's that's quite a talent to itself nothing against dylan mind you (laughs) but uh yeah that said i I love that said dylan's watching the river flow is is similar in a way to watching the wheels okay there you go (laughs) you know and the other thing is that john was so would give us you know these heavy heavy songs but i mean when he would have fun and lighten up i mean how much fun are things like beef jerky and what you got in the whole rock and roll album Mm. you know so there was this fun other side too that to john that was uh was just terrific oh there are many sides to john yeah which is why he's so fascinating Mm-hmm. Lyrically, there there are songs that are such classics as like like in my life is one of my favorite songs of all time. 
right um you know as as beautiful a sentiment as you can express in one song and then you've got i am the walrus which is so completely different and all this stream of consciousness lyrics but it has its place you know and um there's so many different types of songs that john that john gave us uh lyrically and stylistically some were deeply personal some were silly some were universal themes like like uh, power to the people and give peace a chance and all I need is love. You know, there's so many sides to him and he did so much in a very short lifetime. I can't even begin to imagine if he was alive today, how much more great music we would have had from him. Right. All right. Well, I'm sure that John is going to be uh, a topic that's going to pop up a bunch as we near the end of, uh, the year and approach the 40th anniversary of his passing. So, you know, I'll leave it uh, to be continued. Uh, but happy, happy 80th birthday, John, wherever you are right now. And, um, and we love you. We miss you. And uh, what else can be said? I don't know. I'm lost for words, but um, wherever anyway. you are, John, wherever you are, you are here. So I, I guess as we approach the end of this, uh, of this edition of things we said today, let's go around the horn and, uh, basically, uh, give out, uh, our own personal email addresses, contact information and whatnot. And we'll start off with, with Alan. Okay. First. Okay. Um, you can reach me on Facebook. I have two pages. One is Alan Cozen. The other is Alan Cozen remixed. Uh, we have an email address for the entire group of us, uh, which is single word things we said today radio show at gmail.com. That's things we said today radio show at gmail.com. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter where we're at things we said fab and we have a Facebook page or two. The main one is things we said today, Beatles radio fans, and the other one is just things we said today. All right. And uh, as for you, Ken? My email address is everylittlething at att.net. My website is kenmichaelsradio.com. Keep in mind, we mentioned Ken Womack's new book on John Lennon called John Lennon 1980. Uh, the last days in the life. I have uh, copies of that book to give away as part of my Beatles trivia on my website. And also starting next week, I'm going to have a special contest where you can win that new John Lennon tribute album on CD. Gem Records, that's J-E-M Records, celebrates John Lennon, along with T-shirts to go with them. And that will be part of a special contest that will start on tuesday uh next week so um i have that and i also have my other uh talk show podcast called talk more talk a solo beatles video cast which you can watch online on facebook on our facebook page talk more talk a solo beatles video cast every other monday night there will be one this coming monday which happens to be october the fifth and uh, we're going to have dave morell as a special guest on the show to talk about his experiences with john lennon as we celebrate his birthday on that show as well and that will also go up on youtube shortly thereafter and lots of platforms from spotify to podbean 
iHeartRadio, you name it. Okay? And that's it All for right. me. And as for me, uh, you, you could send me an email. If you want to write me directly, email me at WFUVRadio. And the address is Darren DeVivo at WFUV.org. On Facebook, I have two pages. Just search for my name, Darren DeVivo. There's a second page, uh, which is uh, more of a, um, I don't know, professional page. Like that one as well, Darren DeVivo, WFUV DJ, Beatles podcaster. I can never remember what I changed it to. I have to come up with a better name for it. But uh, the worst possible scenario is uh, shoot me a friend request on Facebook, and then I'll send you an invite to the other page. And see the email address, you have that. And as for the radio hours, uh, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, four nights a week, 10 p.m. to midnight, hopefully getting back to 2 a.m. because it was a 10p to 2a shift. But due to the logistics of remote broadcasting with the pandemic, we're at 10 p.m. to midnight. And Saturdays uh, from 1 to 4 in the afternoon, 90.7 FM and 90.7 FM HD2 in the New York City area. And you could stream us at WFUV.org or listen on our app, uh, which you could download. And uh, that's about it for me. So for Ken Michaels, and we're very happy that Alan Cozen is back in the saddle here at Things We Said Today. I'm Darren DeVivo. We will see you soon on the next edition of Things We Said Today. Take care. Take care.